you know how many economists it takes to change a light bulb? How many? Seven plus or minus 10. <laughs> the problem is that the Fed doesn't have a scalpel. They've kind of got a hammer and they can keep beating the heck out of that nail, but they can't really do what Congress should be doing, which is being very specific about policy. I'm Patrick Pacheco, and you're listening to Season 2 of In Good Companies from Cadence Bank, the podcast where we guide you through the forces shaping your business, inside and out. Over the first several episodes of Season 2, we've been unpacking the realities of inflation, supply chain shocks, interest rates, mom and pops, and monetary policy. On this episode, we wanted to zoom out, explain the theory behind it all, the forces that govern every period of inflation, not just the one we're in right now. Armed with that knowledge, we'll look at the present moment with fresh eyes, the surprise benefits, the industries at risk, and the switch you should make before it's too late. To sort through all of this, we called on our old friend and first ever repeat guest, Tel Alessio. I'm the corporate treasurer for Cadence Bank, and and in that role, I manage the investment portfolio of the institution, as well as our liquidity and how we fund the bank, and I I really enjoy what I do here. Tell was one of the very first people we had on the show back in November 2021. Go check out his episode if you haven't heard it already, but a lot has changed since then. The marketplace has really changed. Our customers are dealing with a lot of different challenges that they didn't have to deal with last year, and expectations on a whole have really diversified. We've we've gone from an environment where we were trying to exit COVID and things felt pretty good, to now we're in an environment where inflation seems to be running hot, and it's a challenge for all of our customers, and really, especially the consumer who's trying to make ends meet. Most people sort of get inflation. Prices going up, paying $50 for something that used to cost $40. That's when the explanations start to peter out. To really understand inflation, you've got to start with how it's measured. So inflation is really the rate at which prices are changing. And inflation really has kind of a couple different components to it. Specifically, there's kind of this benchmark number that the marketplace uses to define what inflation is, and that's the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. That's an index that the Bureau of Labor Statistics comes out with each month to kind of indicate a basket of different types of goods and services and how they're changing in price. Then what they'll usually do is take that top headline CPI number and they'll break out from that kind of what they call core CPI, which basically strips out food and energy, which kind of helps get a sense of not just what are you paying at the pump or in the grocery store, but what is everything else that you're consuming cost you and how much faster is that increasing? There's also asset price inflation, which if anybody who has owned a home or has equities, they can understand that those assets also increase in price. And that is another component of inflation, not in those personal consumption numbers. So maybe from you, everybody has their own personal experience with inflation. Where does it strike you that you're feeling inflation? So Patrick, my oldest son just went to college. He started his freshman year at Spring Hill and um, he's thriving down there. But in, in preparation for that, we decided that we would provide him with a car. And so I thought, I have an 11-year-old car. That's the perfect car for him. It's an accurate TL. It's still nice. I've kept it in good condition. And so I went to go look for a car for myself. The car that I want to buy, you know, four years ago probably cost $30,000, $35,000. But today it costs almost $60,000. And so we were driving. We actually stopped by a Honda dealership. 
and I was just walking through the floor and there's a brand new Honda Civic and it was $21,000. And I thought, I'm going to save myself $40,000 today. I'm going to get him a brand new Honda Civic and I'm going to keep my accurate deal. <laughs> so is inflation always bad or is there some, you know, sometimes you hear people say there's a healthy level of inflation. To your point about is there any good inflation? I think we've heard the Federal Reserve over the past few years, really over the past 20 years, say that their target inflation number is 2%. That 2% number, they want positive inflation because it's really difficult for the Fed to fight deflation, which is negative inflation. The Fed doesn't have much in their toolbox to be able to do that. So they like to see a number that's positive so that they can kind of respond with, with, with their main policy tool, which is their interest rate tool, to be able to, to kind of curb higher inflation. So it's easier for the Fed to slow things down than it is to speed things up as, as a general rule? That's correct. Absolutely. Inflation is big news right now. You may have heard on this very podcast that over the summer, inflation hit a 40-year high. I asked Tell to put those numbers in context. The number that I like to look at is that PCE core inflation, which as of July was 4.6%. That kind of strips out kind of some of the energy and food noise, the, the kind of less durable inflation. And it's also the metric that the Fed likes to point to. Your headline CPI number year over year is at 8.3% for the month of August. That number kind of is a shocker, right? You're gonna see that in the headlines. But what you're really seeing kind of more durable inflation is really more that core. Or even if you look at like the X food and energy on CPI. So if you strip out the food and energy from the CPI number, it's more like 6.3%. So we're, we're somewhere in that four and a half to 7% inflation environment, according to those metrics. And the Fed really wants it right around two. And so that's why you're seeing some action from them to try and curb that higher level. To find out how we reach this point, you've got to go back, way back, to Econ 101. So inflation is really made up of two things, right? It's the supply side. What does it cost to make a good? And then what is someone willing to pay for it? So you basically have to start out with what does it cost to create a good or service? And once you kind of have that base cost, then you kind of have a, a margin or a return that you need on that cost. And then where does that cost meet the customer demand? So where can the customer willingly pay for that good or service? And that willingness and ability can change over time, but it also has, has a lot to do with kind of the competitive environment on the supply side. So if you have an environment where you have lots of suppliers, the cost of a good or service will generally gravitate to a lower price because there's more competitive supply of it. On the flip side, if you have a good that's in strong demand and the consumer has an ability to pay for it, prices will gravitate up. And so that's kind of the, how the price discovery is identified within in the marketplace. So if we then restrict supply, all of a sudden, and there's a demand for it, it's going to push prices up. That's exactly right. So what's our current inflation caused by? Supply or demand? I, I, it's both. But all of it brought on by COVID, at least the initial, I think. So there you have it, folks. It's both supply and demand. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of In Good Companies. I'm just kidding, of course. There's more to it. If you look at the headline CPI number, the number we talked that was like 8.3%, that is really driven heavily by the supply side of 
the Russian-Ukraine oil issue, the supply chain disruptions that are occurring because of that on food, especially recently, if you think about what's happened with energy costs, whether it's oil and gas or how that flows through to utility bills, but then also on the food side, we've seen a really significant increase in the rate of inflation in both those two numbers. And those tend to be somewhat temporary. They also tend to be supply shock driven. So if you look at the inflation equation, there's a demand side and there's a supply side. With what we've seen with the crisis from Ukraine, the Russian crisis on oil, and as well as what we saw with COVID and the supply shock, we saw supplies uh, have trouble. It cost more money to get goods. It took longer. And so therefore, the supply side really did force up prices in those, in those two buckets. So food and energy costs are particularly sensitive to disruption. And supply breakdowns can cause those prices to spike. But while they're volatile, they're also the goods we rely on most. And we feel those changes acutely. In general, what moves goods and services is oil and gas. And if energy prices are up, it just costs more for everything. And so that's the piece of energy that kind of flows through to all other prices. And that's been the hardest, I'd say, hit for many Americans. I, there was a Bloomberg article out that said that one in six Americans is having a tough time making their utility payments. And I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised given what we've seen and, and really the warmer weather we've had across the whole country as it relates to probably some global warming impacts that are driving prices of that higher and usage higher. Behind all these disruptions, there's another cost that's rising, labor. And then also, if you think about China and kind of how this globalization effect, which really has held down the cost of global labor, it's somewhat reversing. You can kind of see it in some of the legislation that comes at, that's coming out of Congress where we're trying to bring jobs back on board and do more manufacturing in the US. That is, by its very nature, inflationary because the cost to produce something in the US is higher because labor's more expensive. Now, some of that was Fed driven. One of the things that the Fed has really done through COVID has been had their foot on the gas trying to have full employment. And they really worked hard at getting full employment across all socioeconomic and racial classes. And the problem is that the Fed doesn't have a scalpel. They've kind of got a hammer. And they can keep beating the heck out of that nail, but they can't really do what Congress should be doing, which is being very specific about policy on how to improve employment in certain sectors of the socioeconomic classes. This is where supply and demand forces overlap. Although higher labor costs can drive up the price of goods on the supply side, those increased wages become purchasing power on the demand side. How does the pay people are able to generate out of a job, wage inflation, how does that fit into those or where does that fit into those? So wage inflation, is, it's primarily the factor that drives demand inflation. And what's critical about that is what I refer to as your purchasing power. It's how much faster is your income increasing over the cost of what you're buying. Because as long as your wages are increasing, your income's increasing at a faster pace than the things you're buying, you're actually able to have a better lifestyle. You can afford more. And so when you think about wage inflation, it really drives the demand side, where is someone's purchasing power strong enough that they can afford to pay up for a good that maybe they didn't have to or couldn't or didn't need to a month ago or a year ago. Then you had from Congress an enormous amount of fiscal support through the crisis between 
the economic stimulus payments, the unemployment benefits that got extended, the PPP program, and I can go on and on. That influx of stimulus cash kept the economy afloat, but it also tipped the scales towards demand. They created about seven and a half trillion dollars worth of support during COVID that really helped the demand side. So it gave people money when they needed it, when they otherwise would have probably been, you know, forcibly austere, which would have, you know, supported a lower price environment. And instead, they kind of fueled that price increase by giving people the ability to consume when they otherwise would not have been. I wondered, do you think COVID, when we had people didn't have anything to spend money on, did that act as almost like getting a raise? All of a sudden you had extra money and it had to go somewhere eventually? That's exactly right. I mean, they had obviously a lot of extra money from stimulus, but yeah, that extra money that they weren't spending on travel or experiential things like going out to eat. Instead, they were sitting at home ordering goods off of Amazon and buying new furniture and making home improvements and all of those goods. And that clearly the availability of more money created a significant pressure on the demand side of the inflation equation. While supply-driven inflation can be more immediate and dramatic, inflation caused by demand generally sticks around longer, which is another reason the Federal Reserve is addressing that side of the equation. If you have high inflation numbers with just food and energy, it can cure itself pretty quickly as soon as those supply situations fix it. But on the more durable goods, it tends to be more demand-driven. And if wages continue to increase, then you still have kind of a a durable, higher inflation level than we've seen really for a long time out of history. Economic theory tells you that raising rates will quell demand and less demand results in lower prices or price stability. So when the Fed raises rates, what they're really doing is they're making borrowings or or lending more expensive for people. As you try to think through the, the overall economic spectrum, that's what they're doing. They're making goods more expensive so that people will buy less. So it'll slow down growth. And slower growth means that people won't be demanding as much and it'll create stability in the prices. I don't expect prices to fall, but I do expect that they're trying to prevent them from rising further. And so that's, that's really the end goal of the Fed, is to kind of reestablish that that rate of inflation is lower, not that prices would actually fall below where they were a year ago. So those are the factors that add up to our current complex inflation. But what are the effects? For some, they're surprisingly positive. Yeah, it definitely does depend on who you are, mainly because if you think about that asset inflation number, people who own assets, we've had a lot of asset inflation through the COVID crisis, and people who had assets and wealth, that has gone up considerably, especially people who own their own house. Real estate has gone up about 20% a year, according to um, Schiller's index. And so you're seeing significant asset appreciation. But if you didn't own your own home, and instead you were reliant on COVID stimulus, unemployment benefits, and your rents have all of a sudden shot up, as well as the extra money you're trying to spend on food and your utilities, it can be pretty challenging. And I think that When it comes to those that have benefited the most, you have to think that it has to be the higher wealth brackets because equities are so much higher than they were, real estate is so much higher than than it was. So people with assets really did benefit from the past couple years of inflation pretty significantly. But even those with assets are feeling the pinch. If you think about the cost of home ownership and how much it's changed over the past six months, 
it's not just the fact that housing prices are up 20% a year, according to Schiller, but it also has to do with the fact that the taxes are up, the insurance is up because the price of the property is higher, and then the mortgage rate at the beginning of the year was really around 325, and today it's 630. So the cost of home ownership has gone up almost a little over 40% probably, if you add all that up together. It's amazing how much of an increase shelter has had over the past six months. My electric bill is probably twice as much as my parents' house payment was at nine and a half percent interest rate. It's it's crazy. When there's four numbers in an electric bill, you know, that's that's when you start telling the kids, that's it, no more AC for you. <laughs> Close the refrigerators off, everything, lights off. We're we're in austerity here. Businesses have also had to adjust. Remember the wage inflation we mentioned earlier? Employers are forced to account for those increased costs. Well, Inflation in and of itself obviously affects the cost of inputs for a business's goods and service production. But the other thing that's happened is that tight labor market that the Fed has kind of encouraged has resulted in a labor issue because we had people either were home with COVID or just stopped participating in the labor force. And so our businesses really found it difficult to hire and retain talent. And the retention side of it really started to pick up speed last year as the competition for each worker became more and more intense. And that intensity has now resulted in what we're seeing with wage inflation and how much more people need to pay. What sector is probably the most at risk right now with if inflation continues to stay high and borrowing costs continue to go up? Yeah, businesses where it takes longer to adjust prices, like commercial real estate, where they have longer leases, I think we'll see the shock more readily than businesses like we've seen in food services that are raising their prices every week in some cases, or I've even seen some some restaurants that'll put market price on a hamburger these days. They're able to respond a lot quicker than some of those more longer term contract businesses, whether that's contracts around real estate, like I mentioned, or utilities, those kind of longer lease contracts will be the hardest hit. So how about borrowing costs for businesses? I mean, is that have they really felt that? And how's that, how's that been for the banks, having a little bit of interest margin? So borrowers are just starting to see it, honestly. They probably started this summer a little bit, but banks have actually been very slow to increase their loan rates. Part of that is that banks really wanted loan growth. With interest rates rising, Tell suggests converting any floating lines of credit into fixed ones, while you still can. If you think about most people who enter in, most commercial companies who enter into a project, they tend to gravitate towards fixed rate pricing because they know what their cost of capital is going to be over a, a time horizon. Commercial customers who have lines of credit are on a floating rate basis. And that floating rate has gone up directly with the marketplace. So we've gone from a kind of Fed fund rate of around 25 basis points up to where we are today at 325. So we're up 300 basis points. You consider that from a commercial lending perspective and you look at usually the prime rate is a good example of a prime borrower in the commercial space. That prime rate's gone from 325 to 625. So we've had a pretty significant increase in those short-term floating rates. Fixed rates are adjusting a little slower and they'll pull through the full 300 to 400 basis points in the short order. And I think that you're seeing it in public markets where debt costs are rising pretty fast. The curve is obviously adjusting quicker than it ever has because the expectations for higher rates keep climbing. 
So, you know, predicting the future is always difficult. One thing we know, it's that God made economists so he could make weather forecasters look good. <laughs> Where do you see things going? I mean, it, it, how long could this inflationary period possibly last? So, first of all, I think that we're in, we're in for a longer period of time for higher inflation. I don't think it's going to be kind of at the top of the range that we've seen this year, but something definitely well above what the Fed would like to see at 2%, probably something at the 4 to 5% range. My primary thought around that is really that that shelter component of CPI, that that owner equivalent rents, that's that's a calculation. It's prevented from being very volatile. So there's still a lot of price increase that has to flow through into the top line numbers. So we're going to see inflation remain high for the next few quarters, at least. Ultimately, Tell says it will be demand factors that signal the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, consumption slowing down. If we see consumption slowing down, that's the demand side of the inflation calculation. And if that slows, what the Fed would like to see is a soft landing, but I'm not really sure exactly what that looks like these days because it's difficult to avoid a, an abrupt bump when you're doing something so significant, so different than every other cycle we've ever seen. And, and so some of the kind of unintended policy consequences will probably rear their heads. But I do think that we're going to see for the next 12 months pretty decent loan demand, which means that companies are still expanding and that people are leveraging the, the balance sheets that they have. Consumers in a great place to start because they didn't pay down so much debt during COVID. But as we start to get through that 12-month period, I think that's where you start to see some leverage excesses maybe that will cause some losses to start to materialize. But I think we're really 12 to 18 months away from that. I think that's a lot farther away than most people think. And that will kind of help drive some additional growth on top of probably a little higher prices for a little longer period of time. As inflation continues to dominate the news cycle, you'll have to zero in on what it means for you. What's driving price changes? Is it a temporary supply shock or more durable demand forces? What if you remove the more volatile goods? Once you know what to look for, you'll be able to cut through the noise. And if you own a business, don't get caught up in the headlines. Evaluate your lines of credit, keep an eye on your numbers, and use that information to stay nimble. I think that most of our customers have a good sense of how inflation is affecting their micro business. And that really is, I think, what's critical is keeping a pulse on what's happening. Honestly, what would be great for them to be able to do in the future is to kind of build into contracts some price control as it relates to their suppliers. But in general, they're seeing that day in and day out. The top line numbers are, are fancy for news sources and they're eye-catching and they're great for political conversation, but they don't really necessarily drive into what's happening within a certain geography or within a certain industry. And I would say that if you have your ear to the ground, you understand your business and the inputs, just making sure that you're adjusting your output at the same pace as the inputs. I'd like to thank Telalesio, Cadence Bank Corporate Treasurer, for being our first repeat guest and for putting up with all our jokes. Well, Chell, it was great having you on. One last joke before we go. Thomas walked into the pizza place, ordered a pizza, and uh, comes out. The young lady says, do you want to cut six pieces or eight? He goes, you better make it eight. I'm really hungry today. <laughs> Eden Good Companies is a podcast from Cadence Bank. Member FDIC, equal opportunity lender. Sheena Cochran is our production coordinator. Our executive producer is Danielle Cornell, with writing and production from Andrew Ganim and sound design and mixing by Ben Cranell at Lower Street Medium. I'm your host, Patrick Pacheco. If you made it this far, why don't you go rate and review us in your podcast app? It's the best way to grow the show so we can reach even more listeners. 
And while you're there, subscribe. We'd love to have you because when you're with us, we're in good companies. This podcast is provided as a free service to you and is for general informational purposes only. Cadence Bank and its affiliates make no representation or warranties as to the accuracy, completeness, or timeliness of the content in the podcast. The podcast is not intended to provide legal, accounting, or tax advice and should not be relied upon for such purposes. To the extent that this podcast includes predictions about the economy, these predictions are subject to a number of variables and you should confer with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors for their input regarding the possible outcomes of any economic subject matter discussed herein. Predictions are forward-looking statements that reflect current views with respect to, among other things, future events. Forward-looking statements are not historical facts and are based on current expectations, estimates, and projections, many of which, by their nature, are inherently uncertain and beyond the control of any person or entity. Accordingly, please be aware that any such forward-looking statements are not guarantees and are subject to risks, assumptions, and uncertainties that are difficult to predict. The views and opinions expressed by the host and guests in this podcast are solely their own current opinions regarding the subject matter discussed in the podcast and are based on their own opinions. Such views, perspectives, and opinions do not reflect those of Cadence Bank or any of its affiliates or the companies with which any guest is or may be affiliated. The production and presentation of this podcast by Cadence Bank does not imply the expressions of any opinion on the part of Cadence Bank or any of its affiliates.